A toda capillita le llega su fiestecita. A Spanish saying that translates to every little chapel gets its little party. It means that we all get our celebration, our time of abundance, our saint. This is a patron saint festivities impulse. It's a complicated one and deeply rooted in the passage of the centuries. This podcast looks for what connects present and past. I'm not a historian. These are only my observations and inquiries about the patron saint festivities. I hope you'll find them interesting and that they'll give you some food for thought, especially about what we take for granted. We invite the listeners to communicate with us, share your own observations and opinions. We'll begin with the origin of the cult of the saints. Let's remember that the patron saint festival is celebrated in the name and on behalf of the patron saint of a town, city, or region. To better understand the role of the patron saints, it's helpful to understand the vision of the universe in antiquity. Among the cultures of the Western Mediterranean, Greece and Rome, the vision of the universe was different from ours. There was a world below, that is the earth, and a world above, the sky. The universe was a transparent crystal, where the stars lived in the purest and highest sphere, their celestial nature revealed by their permanence and stability. The earth below was made of the sediments of the universe, changing and humid. In our culture, the soul lives in another dimension, separated by a veil, but more or less next to us. Our perception of this separation is dimensional. People think that they can be in a house where that people actually live, or at least they're ghosts. In ancient times, this division was vertical. They believed that there was a fault line between the two worlds through which souls passed from this world to the heavens. The relationship between the two worlds, apart from the regulation given by the sun and the moon, was that of the gods and humans. It was a one-sided relationship where humans were often the gods' toys. Until the moment of death, there was no direct communication between these two worlds. Death, like a thunderbolt, separated the soul from the body, leaving the sediment of the person behind and elevating the soul to heaven, its most intimate and natural home. Once in heaven, the soul was not able to communicate directly with the people left below. The way humans have imagined the immense mechanism of the universe is often a projection of our own social systems. The first patron saint we know of is Agnes, Saint Agnes of Rome, only 13 years old and born around 291, daughter of a privileged Roman family. Agnes, like many others, converted to Christianity. And because her faith was so intense, she rejected all the suitors her family approved of. Sempronius, the prefect of the city, was personally offended by the agency of this rebellious girl. He ordered his guards to drag her naked through the streets to a brothel, where she was to be raped by the same men she had rejected. Does it remind us of a scene from Game of Thrones? The story goes that, as she was dragged through the streets, her hair miraculously grew to cover her nakedness. At the brothel, the men who tried to rape her were immediately blinded. Then, it was decided to burn her alive but the flames turn away from her body, refusing to burn her. Finally, one of the guards ended her life once and for all, decapitating her with his sword. Her fellow Christians collected her blood with rags, which became sources of miracles. 
Her own sister, after praying at the place where Agnes was beheaded, was miraculously healed. St. Agnes of Rome is now considered the patron saint of girls and chastity. She's one of the first Christian martyrs. So powerful is her story that she is still venerated by the Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and Lutheran churches. So who wouldn't want to have Agnes as an intercessor, a diplomat to advocate for us before the heavenly world? This idea of having a representative to advocate for us was certainly not new. In Roman society, the social classes were clearly polarized. There was a ruling elite and a working class and slaves. And it was precisely because of this division that the patronos, or patrons, came to be. Nowadays, we drink patron tequila. The name tells us that it's of superior quality, that it is what the ruling classes drink, what the bosses drink. In Rome, patrons established a relationship with individuals who needed help and representation in a society indifferent to the needs of the people. Of course, the obligations were mutual. This patronage was not out of charity, but in some way, it benefited both parties. We can still hear the merchants at the stalls loudly calling potential customer patroncitos in Mexican markets. A patron, for Latinos today, is a boss, a superior, an authority. The patron saints, by their nature, have a direct line to God. We burn incense and candles, place flowers at their altars, and we make promises of masses, pilgrimages, and other knickknacks if they help us to get out of trouble, cure our ailments, or bring back a loved one who has strayed away. Highly virtuous and miraculous people have been populating the pantheon of the patron saints throughout the centuries. When the Spanish colonizers arrived in Latin America and the Caribbean, Part of their mandate was to convert every rational being they encountered to the Catholic faith. As part of their didactic material, so to speak, was the image of Maria de Guadalupe, a virgin from the region of Extremadura. The history of the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico is a multi-layered story. Her temple was built on the Mount Huertosi. Our little mother had her temple and celebrated her feasts, which Chilopostli, the god of war, the patron god of the Aztecs, called her our grandmother. Tosi was a brutal goddess who consumed, through her priest, the blood of multiple captured enemy warriors sacrificed in her honor. The priest, dressed in the skin of a recently sacrificed virgin and personifying Tosi, ritually sipped the blood from decorated gourds, roaring for more and more blood. This celebration in her honor marked the beginning of the war season and was an annual festival like that of the European martyrs and many local gods in other regions of the world. The story of the Virgin of Guadalupe, not to be confused with the Spanish Virgin Mary of Guadalupe, is well known because Chicana feminists have reclaimed her myth in search for an imagined Mexican identity. We could say that the Virgin of Guadalupe becomes a bridge between the natives and the colonizers. She is a way of explaining to them that there is a patroness, an authority to be respected and obeyed, but that in return, she offers us protection and favors in times of need. The Temple of Guadalupe is built on top of Tosi's temple on Mount Tepeyac. Both are our mothers. Tosi was a mother who protected through fear. Guadalupe protected through her love, protection well needed in colonial times. 
This is an almost criminal oversimplification, and I apologize to all those who have studied the myth carefully or who are devotees of the Virgin of Guadalupe. Her mention in this podcast is to illustrate how an idea travels through time but retains its original intent. During the colony, Mexico, the new Spain, played an important role in the control of all the Spanish colonies, not only for its size or because it was one of the first colonies, but because of its immense natural capital. Until Mexico's independence from Spain in 1810, its silver financed the defense of all Spanish colonies. Silver coins minted in New Spain traveled in galleons to Cuba, from where they were distributed to the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Florida, and even the Philippines. These shipments were called situados, literally boxes full of silver coins. The situados came with administrators hired by the Viceroy of New Spain, and they were used to pay the foot soldiers, the armadas, which are the soldiers who man warships, and for the construction of forts, like the one in San Juan de Puerto Rico. But there are many other examples of these types of forts. One of these situados came to Ponce, a new settlement in Puerto Rico. The colonists were facing a particularly hostile Taino group and desperately needed funds to protect themselves from the natives. Among the paraphernalia carried by the colonists was an image of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And that is how the quintessentially Mexican Virgin of Guadalupe became the patron saint of the city of Ponce in Puerto Rico. But I feel I must vindicate her. The Virgin of Guadalupe has not only worked for the Spanish monarchy, she also became the banner for the independence fighters in Mexico, led by Miguel Hidalgo in 1810, and was used by the peasants turned revolutionaries at the beginning of the 20th century. New Spain financed the creation of sugar plantations in Cuba and created the tobacco industry monopoly, which became the financial backbone of Spain. The Caribbean islands, in particular Puerto Rico, nursed liberal tendencies that made the mother country very nervous. One of the ways to combat these tendencies was to install Manuel de la Torre y Pando as governor in 1820. Manuel was a fanatic of the monarchy and experienced in fighting pro-independence forces. His career advanced by recovering the territory of New Granada, now more or less Colombia. He had also served the Spanish crown in Venezuela, where the rules of engagement between the new and old world were accomplished through his mediation. Once in Puerto Rico, his strategy to combat the independent impulses of the Puerto Rican population was a policy that he himself called Baile, Botella y Baraja, or Bottle, Dance and Shuffle. He thought, and rightly so, that an entertained crowd becomes tame and domesticated. The perfect opportunity to implement his strategy was the patron saint festivities. He served his crown faithfully and retired with the title of Count of Torrepando in Madrid in payment for his services. Religious fervor is the fuel for the Virgin of Guadalupe patron saint celebrations in Mexico. Mexicans love their little mother. Every year, the festivities begin with the famous Mañanitas, a song that was born from the Romanza of the Sephardic Jewry in the Spanish Middle Ages and that Manuel M. Ponce, the composer of the early 20th century, writes and consolidates as a Mexican birthday song. After the Mañanitas, a special mass is offered to her in her basilica, her temple. Many believers arrive from all corners of the country. Some slowly advance on their knees to pay a manda, payment for a favor that the Virgin has granted. 
Many wear a tilma, an apron-like garment imitating that of Juan Diego. There are stalls in the street with snacks, water, items that make the pilgrimage and the fight against the crowd more bearable, and of course, all kinds of mementos. Holograms of the Virgin, plastic piggy banks in the shape of the Basilica, medals of all kinds. People join in singing out loud, the Virgin said to Juan Dieguito, I choose this hill to make my altar. Trying to get to the Basilica early in the morning is a surreal twister, made of people sleeping on the floor, forming an endless carpet of the faithful. I moved to Holyoke in 2010. Most of the Spanish speakers here are Puerto Rican. Many of them come from Ponce, Salinas, and the Guayama region. Of course, this is an oversimplification. There is no accurate data on immigrants in my city. Last year, the local government decided to establish a semblance of a Puerto Rican patron saint festivity. Maybe from Ponce? Some would like the Virgin of Guadalupe to be the patron saint of Holyoke, but the Irish population claims the title for St. Patrick, with its long tradition of the parade in his honor. Last year's fiestas patronales were intended to reflect the patron saint festivities in Puerto Rico. I signed up as a volunteer to get a closer look at what it was all about. I got the job of picking up trash, which was mostly empty beer bottles and cans and styrofoam containers with food leftovers. There were a lot of people because the chosen bands were very mainstream. Most people there were tourists, well-equipped for the day with big, well-stocked coolers, chairs, kids, and pets, most of them from Hartford, Worcester, and some even from New York. Vendors' fees range from $20,000 to $800. Those numbers surely left out those who could really benefit from the event. The opening was a car race, for which a street was especially repaired. An exhibition of restored cars completed the scene. As I was collecting bottles and cans, a small group of young men mistook me for a homeless person and kindly volunteered to give me some empty cans to help you, mami. This was a live vignette of what happens in my city. But back to the fiestas patronales in Puerto Rico. My friend, whom we will call Manny, remembered his childhood in Ponce. The most important thing about the patron saint festivities was the presence of the artisans. All the artisans registered in the guild would set up a stand with their merchandise. He remembers it as a fantastic display. Maria, on the other hand, does not remember the patron saint festivities in her town, Salinas, because that was all about drunkards and dancing. And I was a child, she says. After I got married and had five babies in six years, I never danced or goofed off at parties. The memories of my friend Ernie, originally from Utuado, are quite different. He remembers a full week of festivities, opening with a Diana Alegre, a truck with a group of percussionists and brass players riding the streets, waking up people and announcing the beginning of the celebrations. On Friday, San Miguel Arcangel is celebrated. His portrait is taken out into the streets and surrounded by fireworks from which he appears to emerge victorious in an almost magical trick. The festivities happen downtown, at the plaza, in front of the main church. He says that they used to put a lot of mechanical games, which he calls machinas, and that there were kiosks with alcapurrias and fried food, rum and piña colada. Lots of alcohol, lots of drinking. La pica, wooden stick horses that compete in a betting race, is a vestigial reminder of colonial gambling. Other activities included a 30-feet greased pole, where you could win a prize 
if you could climb it and retrieve a flag set atop, and of course, the performances of singers and musical groups. So, where are the patronos for immigrants recently arrived from a hurricane, or those who are unhoused, for mothers who cannot pay their utilities, for those who do not have access to food or the internet, or simply those who do not speak English? We are in the vicious cycle grip of non-profit human service agencies with their top-down models, disconnected from the reality of the dispossessed and uninterested in solving the problems, because solving them would kill their cash cow, their modus vivendi. Long live the three Bs, baile, botella y bong. In this country, we are told that all of us have the right to pursue happiness, at least in theory. The instant euphoria from alcohol or sugar is not really happiness. The stress caused by engaging in constant battle for survival erodes people and ends up shooting them violently like a centripetal force into vicious cycles to adapt to their social conditions. History tells us that the practice of bread and circus quiets people's rage, only temporarily. I hope you found this brief commentary on the patron saint festivities their origin and political function interesting. You can listen to it in Spanish or English. This is the first of a series of podcasts about the culture and events that are happening around us. Thank you to Johan Rashi Vega for his encouragement and unconditional support. Thank you to Jay Savage for his investigative compulsion and to everyone who took the time to speak to me about their personal experiences. Until the next one, signing out, Gabriel Alcantara Pols.